Hello and welcome to Restoration Church's teaching podcast. We are in Prescott, Arizona. My name is Nate Huss and I'm one of the team members here. And uh, if this is your first time, welcome. We're so glad that you could tune in. And yeah, if you'd like to connect with us or learn more, jump over to restorationaz.org. And uh, before we get going, I just want to encourage you, will you take a moment and just pause really quick? Every week um, at the end of the teaching, we always participate in communion. And so I would love for you to go grab uh, a small glass of grape juice, or if you don't have grape juice, just a glass of juice. If you don't have that, if you just have water, that's okay. Um, It's all about remembrance. And so grab that, uh, a small little piece of bread or a cracker, something that you have, and join us as we participate in communion at the end. And so we feel like there's no greater application at the end of listening to God's word than allowing the spirit to unify us through communion and remembering what Jesus has done for us. So take a moment, pause, go grab that. Also, now that you're back, will you please take a moment just to grab your Bible, open it up to Mark chapter nine, and we are going to dive in together. So this week we are back into our teaching series of the gospel of Mark, and we are in chapter nine. As all of the kids follow Nate, uh, if it's your first time here with us, it is uh, a pleasure to be with you this morning. My name is Landon, and I uh, get to be one of the, the team members here at this moment in time. I'm not sure if it's hotter inside or outside, so we'll, we'll determine by, by the end, but it's a little warm. So uh, the last couple of months, we've been in two different series. One was our hospitality practice. We, we believe that information alone does not lead to transformation, but Jesus calls us to practice his way of life. And so we do that. Uh, One of the practices we did most recently was our hospitality practice. And uh, I enjoyed that, was challenged by it. Hopefully you were as well. And then we moved into our liturgy series, discussing what we do together as the body on Sunday mornings. We wrapped that up last week. And so uh, I'm genuinely uh, eager and excited just to be able to dive uh, straight back into the scriptures this morning. And so if you have a Bible, I would love for you to turn with us to Mark Chapter 9 will be in verses 30 through uh, 37, and I'm going to read that in, in just a minute. Frankly, I was, I was quite convicted by our, our passage this morning, um, and, and so we'll get there in a second, and I'm going to give you some time to, to reflect on that passage. First, though, I want to read uh, this passage out of Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, verses 12 through 13, it's going to describe or, or use this word, literally the word word, W-O-R-D, which is used quite a bit in the scriptures. Sometimes it is describing a, a literal word. Sometimes it's a, a name or an imagery used for Jesus. Uh, other times it's described, like in Genesis, it says, in the beginning God created and he spoke things into existence. Everything that was good and right, the trees, plants, animals, ourselves, was spoken into existence. God spoke and it was so. And then the Gospel of John describes Jesus and says, the word was with us. And in Hebrews, we read something similar. Go ahead and uh, uh, listen with me. The author of Hebrews says in verse 12, for the word of God this is a weird way to describe words, right? Is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. You almost have this imagery of a, a surgery happening. It is able to judge the ideas and thoughts of the heart. Now it says, no creature is hidden from him. 
But all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him, Jesus, to whom we must give account. And I, uh, as I was studying this week, was forced to endure this process of God's word refining and, and performing some sort of surgery in me. And that's kind of the, the word picture we're given here. It's like a surgery. Hopefully, if somebody is having a surgery, it's because at the end, something better is going to happen, some type of healing or restoration or, or whatever it might be. But the reality is, in the midst of the surgery and often after, it's painful. And sometimes God's word is that way. And as I reflected this week, I, I experienced a little bit of that. Like I mentioned, and so I thought it would only be fair for you to have to experience that as well. So we're going to do something a little different today. It's kind of weird, but I'm okay with that. I'm going to read this morning's passage, and then I'm going to step off the stage for a little bit of time. I don't know how long. We'll see for as long as I feel comfortable being uncomfortable. And I'm actually just going to let like, God's word speak to you. Um, meditate on it. Pray about it. We'll put it on the, the screens and on kind of a cycle and keep reading it or pull out your phone or the scriptures and, and read it again. Or maybe if you're with your kids or a spouse or next to somebody, talk to them about it. Ask questions about it. H how are you perceiving it? What do you feel when you read it? And I'm just going to give us a few minutes to let God's word do that. And then I'll come back up and we'll kind of dissect it a little bit more in terms of the, the culture and context and actual accounts. But I was impacted just reading these words, and so I want to give you that opportunity this morning. We'll read Jesus' words beginning uh, in Mark chapter 9, verse 30. Then they left that place and made their way through Galilee. But Jesus did not want anyone to know it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent. Because on the way they had been arguing, about, or arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a child, had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one little child such as this and my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. Go ahead and just take a few minutes to read that again. Pull it out on your phone. Grab your Bible. Maybe discuss it with someone. But just take a few minutes to let God's Word uh, do what God's Word does. Open your heart to that. And then I'll come back up in just a moment.
I think to blindly assume that following Jesus is a good idea is a mistake. Jesus actually more often than he said those famous words, follow me, he actually discouraged people from following him. He told them, count the cost first, think about this, because it's not simple. It's going to come with a heavy price. And the mindset, the way of walking and thinking and living and breathing, journeying through life that Jesus calls us to, it's not simple and it's not easy. It's certainly not what our culture calls us to. It's a, it's a, it's a high mountain to climb. It's one that we should genuinely think about before beginning the journey. We, we read here, then they left that place and made their way through Galilee, but he did not want anyone to know it. At this point in his ministry, Jesus is transitioning away from crowds into simply spending more time with his disciples, those closest to him. For he was teaching his disciples, verse 31 says, and telling them, the Son of Man, which they would have recognized, he was talking about himself at this point, he says, is being betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. It says that they were on a journey going from one place to the next. So I envision them walking on this, this trail or this road together, Jesus and his disciples, and he says this to them. And as soon as he says this to them, there's nothing but silence. He goes, hey, I'm going to be betrayed and then killed and then rise three days later. And they're like, what are you talking about? They'd given up their lives to follow him, and he's like, hey, I'm about to die. They don't know what to say, and so there's just this awkward silence, quiet, other than their footsteps walking on the dirty pathway. And eventually, what I picture happening, because there's silence, they don't know what to say, is that they kind of start walking a little bit slower so that Jesus starts walking a little bit faster than them. And then all of a sudden, there's 20, 25 feet in between the disciples and Jesus, and they're not having to deal with the awkwardness. And maybe as they're walking on this awkward pathway, no one's talking. Eventually, a few minutes later, there's enough distance in terms of time and this physical gap that someone feels like they can have a conversation again. And they start arguing and passionately debating and having this conversation with one another. And then they arrive at their destination, probably one of their houses, maybe Peter's. And we read this in verse 33. Then they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, Jesus asked them. Remember, they, they just had silence. No one asked him what he meant. They didn't know how to respond. And then after that, what were you arguing about? On the way, verse 34, more silence. But they were silent because on the way they had been arguing about or with one another about who was the greatest. I was having a, a conversation with one of my friends this week and I said, hey, in our, our church and our community, the greater Prescott area, however you want to define it, what do you think people are concerned with? But what we see in this instance with the disciples and Jesus is that the disciples were not concerned with what Jesus was concerned with. Maybe another way to think about it is what, what are our minds, what's our headspace occupied, filled with? What are the conversations that you frequently have repeatedly? What, what do you value enough to think about, talk about, wonder about, desire? Because again, the disciples 
weren't concerned with what Jesus was concerned with. One of my most frequent prayers for myself, and I, I probably say it for us as well on, on Sundays, is simply, Jesus, help me to be concerned with what concerns you. Because if we're honest, that's probably not our natural state of mind. As I asked my friend this question, I think he had a pretty wise and spot-on answer. He said, I think it's housing. Think about the, the conversations you have. And sure enough, within like 36 hours, I had three to four different random conversations about housing. Place yourself maybe in the, the shoes of the disciples in this moment. Jesus says to us, and, and maybe imagine yourself with your, your spouse or family or friends or neighbors, and, and we've been with Jesus, and we're walking down this path from one place to the next, and Jesus says, hey, I'm going to be killed after I'm betrayed, and then I'll rise three days later. And we're like, oh, don't know what to say to that, so we're just quiet. We do the slower walk thing and let Jesus get a little bit ahead of us. Five or six minutes passes, and finally someone feels confident enough since Jesus is far enough away that we can have that conversation. And maybe you've heard something like this in the past few months. There are so many people moving here from California. And then someone else responds, I know, it's crazy. The, the real estate market right now is insane. And then maybe you go, yeah, I think what we're thinking about selling, it seems like there could be some good value right now. Someone goes, yeah, we thought about that, or, or we thought we might just add on to our, our property right now, and then we'll, we'll renovate it and, and sell it or rent it out for, for some kind of profit. And someone's saying, we're thinking about moving to that area because it's close to the kid's school. It'll be, it'll be nice. Someone's talking about how many years it's taken to remodel and do landscaping. Have you had any of those types of conversations, maybe, recently, this morning? And then if we're walking on this pathway, we get to your house and Jesus sits down first, not on the couch or the, the dining table, but he leans his back against the wall and sits on the floor and he just kind of waits a second. We kind of finish our little conversation about housing and the market in, in Prescott, Arizona. We throw out some, some real recent statistic about the real estate market and then we finally stop and it's silent again and Jesus looks calmly, just goes, hey, what were you guys so passionately discussing on the way and what is the space filled with again silence because all of a sudden we have this flashback and we remember oh yeah he just said he was going to be betrayed and killed we're talking about our our, our housing again I, I kind of imagine there's some moment like this and in the or out of the silence Jesus speaks again out of the silence, sitting down, he called the 12 and said to them, now this doesn't make any sense. This isn't something you're going to hear often. If anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. That there's something really key we have to understand about this word servant. Jesus isn't saying you must go serve people sometimes. It's in like go to the soup kitchen once a month or find some other serving opportunity. That's not what he's describing here. When he uses the word servant, He's describing a social status, to be a slave, to be a servant in someone's household. He's not saying go serve sometimes. He's saying if you want to be first, then that person needs to be last and become the servants, meaning your identity and your status and how you view yourself in your uh, circles, servant of all. When's the last time that's how you viewed yourself? Not as someone who goes to serve, but as the servants of all. 
Then he took a child, had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, remember, at this point in in this culture, in this time, a child didn't offer anything. A child had no status or, or dignity, no clout or power or authority or money, not until a father would give that to his child, and that's only a son, would a child have anything to offer. Yet Jesus grabs this child and then speaks, taking the child in his arms. He says to them, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. Jesus is saying what we talked about a couple months ago. Be hospitable to people like children who when you're hospitable to them, they can't be hospitable back. When you care for them, they can't care back. When you give to them, they can't give back. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus made a habit out of offering hospitality to those that couldn't offer it back in return. Jesus did things that don't make sense. This is the way of Jesus. He says something similarly, maybe disturbing, maybe very just different than how we function in our culture in Luke chapter 6. I want to read Luke chapter 6 verses 27 through 36. Previously to this, uh, a bunch of different times, Jesus is teaching this crowd and his disciples are there, and he says this statement, you have heard it said, but I say to you, meaning the common thinking of the day is this, but I'm going to give you something entirely different. We pick up at verse 27, but I say to you who listen, side note, we have a choice of whether or not to listen to the word of God. I say to you who listen, love your enemies. Do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If anyone hits you on the cheek, offer the other also. We often get hung up on this passage, and rightfully so in many ways. We don't have the the cultural understanding. This type of hit isn't uh, throwing a punch to physically harm somebody. This type of hit was a slap to insult. It wasn't about physical injury. It was to insult somebody's social status. And Jesus is saying, if someone slaps you on one cheek to say, they matter more, give them the other also. And just say, yes, I'm your servant. I am less than. He, he continues on, and if anyone takes away your coat, don't hold back your shirt either. Give to everyone who asks you, and from the one who takes your things, don't ask for them back. Just as you want others to do for you, do the same for them. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do what is good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to be repaid in full. But, you've heard it said, but I say to you, here's the way of Jesus that is different. But... Love your enemies. Do what is good and lend expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful just as your Father also is merciful. The the way of Jesus doesn't make sense a lot of times. The way of Jesus is going to be hard and challenging. The way of Jesus is a mountain that is not easily going to be climbed. 
And we have to ask, is Jesus trustworthy when he calls us to take these types of steps to walk this way? One, one question maybe it, it brings up is this. Do you struggle? Do we struggle with contentment? I wonder as, as Jesus and the disciples are walking along that road and he said, hey, I'm going to die. And then they have this passionate conversation once the awkward silence stopped. Do you think the disciples struggled with contentment? It's kind of a, an easy answer. Do you think Jesus struggled with contentment walking on that road? he did. I actually am going to make a crazy assertion. Hear the heart on this. I think it could be argued that Jesus is the least content person to have ever walked on the earth. Though he was the one that lacked nothing, though there's nothing he didn't have, I think he lacked contentment more than any of us sitting in this room. The difference is this. He didn't argue about being the greatest. He looked out. And as he walked, he saw things differently. And as he walked, he heard conversations differently. And as he walked, he felt things differently. See, Jesus lacks contentment way more than we lack contentment. But it was never for himself. It was always for others. When's the last time you were walking through life, driving down your street, in your workplace, at school, dropping your kids off at school, doing whatever the the normal routine you have in life, When's the last time that happened and you had a massive discontentment issue for someone else? When's the last time that you struggled with contentment because you realized they're not living, they're lacking? Not materialistically, not necessarily finances or housing or whatever else it is, but you see someone else's life and you go, that's not what God intended. This isn't the way it's meant to be. There's brokenness that isn't meant to be there and God longs to restore and heal and work and move. When's the last time that you were discontent with a holy type of discontentment on someone else's behalf? See, Jesus walks differently. Jesus was the most discontent person on that road, though his disciples were having an argument about who would be the greatest. Think about that for a second. As they're walking on this road, arguing about who would be the greatest, with every single step that Jesus took, he was giving away his life. He was actively walking to intentionally, purposefully give up his life for our sake, for their sake. Jesus walks differently than we walk. I don't know about you, but that's not how I take steps through life naturally concerned for others. Is our pattern, is our habit, are our minds occupied, concerned with what we're desiring to grasp, to pull, to hold on to, to cling to in life with a closed fist once we get a hold of it? Or maybe what the, the next step in our career should be. Maybe it's about housing. Maybe it's about what we want for our kids. Or do we walk through life discontent because of where others are at and wanting more for them, and so we walk through life giving open-handedly. It's a very different posture. Jesus walked giving, not grasping. Jesus calls us, too, to walk with a holy discontentment. 
That's not usual. What we see today, what we're taught today, is look for opportunities to advance your world and your kingdom and your family and your status. Well, what's interesting is we can actually make the mistake of thinking that we're just more of a selfish culture than the biblical one. They carried way more about honor and shame than we do. Like when they sat at a dinner table, every single time they sat at a table, they were seated in a very specific order to say who was of the most importance. They cared more than we do. And in the midst of all that caring, Jesus is saying, we've got it backwards. If you want to be the greatest, you become the least. You welcome those who have nothing to offer you in return. There's a high cost to that. That might not get you places that you want to go in our world. Here's the thing, as Jesus sat in that house and he taught his disciples, he didn't tell them, now you understand this. To, to be the greatest, you need to become the least, so go solve world hunger. It's not what he told them. He didn't even say, hey, there's an issue with low-income housing in the city or the town that you come from, so go work on that. No, he didn't give them an action step. I think Jesus just called them to walk different to walk with a holy discontentment, to walk seeing the lives of those around them and saying, that's not what Jesus intended. How can I help? How can I give instead of walking through life saying, what can I grasp? And that would even include for, for some of us, what can I grasp for my children? Instead of what do I give and I trust Jesus with my kids? Who, who are the people in your circle? Your circles, maybe your friends, neighbors, coworkers, people uh, at the, the school where your kids go to school, whatever you do, wherever you go, your circle. Who are the people in that circle that are lacking? I, I don't mean financially. I don't mean in terms of where they live. I mean in terms of what God's intent is for human life, for flourishing. Is there, is there someone in your circle that doesn't have a family? That's alone? Because when, when Yahweh God created and the word went out into the world and he said it was good, part of what was good was family. So if you know someone that doesn't have family, maybe what he's calling you to be discontent about in this moment is that they don't have family and we're called to go be their family. Maybe it's simpler. Do you know somebody that, that just hasn't had a smile or a laugh or joy in some time? Maybe give them an experience, an opportunity to delight in one of the beautiful, brilliant, good things that God's created. Maybe it's a concert. Maybe it's a, an incredible meal. Can you do something to bring them a glimpse of joy of what God created this world to be? It doesn't mean we can offer that all the time, but that's a foretaste and a preview of what God's intent is. Do you know somebody that's, that's maybe parenting alone? How do we actually, actively, continually, sustainably partner with them in that? To say, you're not alone. We're here with you. Where do you see people living in less than what God intended? doesn't mean they're less than in any way. We're all living outside of God's intent. But we're called to walk different, to see different, to hear and feel different. You and I have a calling to actually be less content not about our own worlds, but about the worlds and lives and circumstances of the people in our circles. May we be a people that, that live 
with less contentment. I want to close by reading a passage out of the letter uh, that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. So in our our Bibles, it's Philippians in chapter 2. And Philippi, uh, where Paul wrote this letter to a church there, was a Roman colony. So really, of of all places, they understood status the most. They had a very specific set of categories of people and what you were allowed to do and where you were allowed to go, how you were even allowed to be killed. If you were to be killed, it was all based on status and honor and shame. There was the emperor, and then there were senators, and then there were kind of just peasants, people that didn't own land. Then eventually there was the military in general, and then there was slaves and servants. When we think of crucifixion, we think of how terrible the physical suffering was, which is very valid. That's not what they would have thought of. They would have thought of what it meant socially for your status. If some Roman citizen was wrongfully crucified, whoever crucified them might be crucified as well just because that is so shameful. In Philippians 2, what we're going to read and see is actually something very similar to what you could have read on a tombstone in that day. There's a specific order that went over a person's name and their family, especially if it was a family of high social status, of their accolades, what they accomplished, what they owned. It would have described the elevation they had in society. Paul took that, what would have been very common in this culture, and he wrote the same thing in the same form, almost think of a a literary structure in a poem, and he reversed it with Jesus. Everyone would have recognized it if they'd ever been to any type of service, funeral, memorial, whatever you want to call it in that day. They would have recognized this type of literary structure. But what's different is what we're going to read in Philippians. talks about how Jesus descended, not how he lifted himself up. That's the posture we're called to have. Let me read this as we close in Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes to a church like us, if then... There is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, sharing the same feelings, focusing on one goal. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out, not only for his own interests, that's not a bad thing, but also for the interests of others. Now here's this this description, this literary structure that they would have seen before. They would have known this. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus. This would have been shockingly different. Who, existing in the form of God, there's no higher place, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself By assuming the form of a slave, not by serving, but by taking on the identity and form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men, he continues to descend. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And then there's this note, even to death on a cross, the most shameful death, the death that identified a person as worthless. Jesus went to the lowest Depths. But that isn't the end of the story. For this is the economy of God. This is the way of God. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you. That is an incredibly key verse. It's not you that are going to do the work. For it is God who is working in you, enabling you both to desire and to work out his good purpose. That's fascinating. There's two different things God is doing within us. The Spirit is working within us. First, he changes our desires. I go back to that prayer. I pray sometimes, and I need it. Jesus may be concerned with what concerns you. I can't change my desires, but the Spirit can if we ask. Now, that's a terrifying prayer. So you don't know what God's going to do in that midst. First, he changes our desires, and then he changes our actions, enabling you both to desire and to work out his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world. Hold firmly to the message of life, then I can boast in the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. May we be a people that take on that mindset, that attitude of Christ Jesus. Though it doesn't make sense and though there is a legitimate high cost, may we be a people that walk differently, a people that walk with a holy discontentment, that walk seeking how we can give instead of seeking what we can grasp. People that walk with what-ifs less about our world and our kingdoms and what we desire and more what-ifs about the people in our circles. May God lead us in that way. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, may you... Overwhelm us with your love. May your word work in our hearts. May you free us from ourselves. May you guide us to be who you've made us to be. To desire what you desire. To be concerned with what concerns you. To walk with a holy discontentment. May you place in our hearts a discontentment when we see life in ways that isn't what you designed for others. May we be a people that you stir in us a love and desire to give. Not financially necessarily, unless you call us to that, but just seeking to give life the way you want life to be given. We look to you in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to continue to worship as as we do. Again, not just in song, but also in taking communion. So if you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to the table. If you're wanting to experience his love, or maybe if you uh, just have enough faith to come to the table and to take communion, then this is for you. It's a remembrance of his body and his blood, of the cup he poured out for us. It's a remembrance that he's the one doing the work in and through us, that he can change our desires and our actions It could change how we walk. We invite you to to celebrate communion, to come to the table knowing that he is good always and that there's never a moment he's not with you. And we'll continue to uh, worship in song in just a moment, but feel free to come to the table in response and worship now.
Thanks so much for listening. Once again, we are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona. And again, my name is Nate Huss. I'm one of the team members here. So glad that you were able to join us. And uh, if this is your first time listening or you've been listening for a little while and um, are still doing the online thing, I just want to encourage you, go get plugged in. Um, Restoration may not be the church for you, and that's okay. But I want to encourage you, go get plugged in with the local body. Is there a church in your area that you could trust and join and, and be a part of the body of Christ? There's something that is really valuable and important about journeying together with other people who are on the journey of practicing the way of Jesus. And so um, whatever that looks like, if restoration is a a place that you could call home and you're in Prescott, Arizona, or in one of the quad cities in the area, we would love for you to join us. If not, I just really want to encourage you, um, go get plugged into a local body. It's really, really valuable. um, And I truly believe it is important for us on our journey of faith. And so um, again, if you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to restorationaz.org. And as always, remember, Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.